The fifth Tuesday, we talk about family. It was the first week in September, back to school week, and after 35 consecutive autumns, my old professor did not have a class waiting for him on a college campus. Boston was teeming with students, double parked on the side streets, unloading trunks. And here was Maury in his study. It seemed wrong, like those football players who finally retire and have to face that first Sunday at home, watching on TV, thinking, I could still do that. I have learned from dealing with those players that it is best to leave them alone when their old seasons come around. Don't say anything. But then I didn't need to remind Maury of his dwindling time. For our taped conversations, we had switched from handheld microphones, because it was too difficult now for Maury to hold anything that long, to the lavalier kind popular people on TV use. You can clip these onto a collar or lapel. Of course, since Maury only wore soft cotton shirts that hung loosely on his ever-shrinking frame, the microphone sagged and flopped, and I had to reach over and adjust it frequently. Maury seemed to enjoy this because it brought me close to him, in hugging range, and his need for physical affection was stronger than ever. When I leaned in, I heard his wheezing breath and his weak coughing, and he smacked his lips softly before he swallowed. Well, my friend, he said, what are we talking about today? How about family? Family. He mulled it over for a moment. Well, you see, all around me. He nodded to photos on his bookshelves of Maury as a child with his grandmother, Maury as a young man with his brother, David, Maury with his wife, Charlotte, Maury with his two sons, Rob, a journalist in Tokyo, and John, a computer expert in Boston. I think in light of what we've been talking about all these weeks, family becomes even more important, he said. The fact is, there is no foundation, no secure ground upon which people may stand today if it isn't the family. It's become quite clear to me as I've been sick. If you don't have the love and support and caring and concern that you get from a family, you don't have much at all. Love is so supremely important, as our great poet Auden said, love each other or perish. Love each other or perish? I wrote it down. Auden said that? Love each other or perish, Maury said. It's good. No? And it's so true. Without love, we are birds with broken wings. Say I was divorced or living alone or had no children, this disease, what I'm going through, would be so much harder. I'm not sure I could do it. Sure, people would come visit, friends, associates, but it's not the same as having someone who will not leave. It's not the same as having someone whom you know has an eye on you, is watching you the whole time. This is part of what a family is about, not just love, but letting others know there's someone who is watching out for them. It's what I miss so much when my mother died, what I call your spiritual security, knowing that your family will be there watching out for you. Nothing else will give you that, not money, not fame. He shot me a look, not work he added. Raising a family is one of those issues on my little list. Things you want to get right before it's too late. I told Maury about my generation's dilemma with having children, how we often saw them as tying us down, making us into these parent things that we did not want to be. I admitted to some of these emotions myself. 
Yet when I looked at Maury, I wondered if I were in his shoes about to die and I had no family, no children, would the emptiness be unbearable? He had raised two sons to be loving and caring and like Maury, they were not shy with their affection. Had he so desired, they would have stopped what they were doing to be with their father every minute of his final months. But that was not what he wanted. Don't stop your lives, he told them. Otherwise, this disease will have ruined three of us instead of one. In this way, even as he was dying, he showed respect for his children's worlds. Little wonder that when they sat with him, there was a waterfall of affection, lots of kisses and jokes and crouching by the side of the bed, holding hands. Whenever people ask me about having children or not having children, I never tell them what to do, Maury said, looking at the photo of his oldest son. I simply say, there is no experience like having children. That's all. There is no substitute for it. You cannot do it with a friend. You cannot do it with a lover. If you want the experience of having complete responsibility for another human being and to learn how to love and bond in the deepest way, then you should have children. So you would do it again? I asked. I glanced at the photo. Rob was kissing Maury on the forehead and Maury was laughing with his eyes closed. Would I do it again? He said to me, looking surprised. Mitch, I would not have missed that experience for anything, even though he swallowed and put the picture in his lap. Even though there is a painful price to pay, he said. Because you'll be leaving them? Because I'll be leaving them soon. He pulled his lips together, closed his eyes, and I watched the first teardrop fall down the side of his cheek. And now, he whispered, you talk. Me? Your family. I know about your parents. I met them years ago at graduation. You have a sister too, right? Yes, I said. Older, yes. Older. And one brother, right? I nodded. Younger? Younger. Like me, Maury said. I have a younger brother. Like you, I said. He also came to your graduation, didn't he? I blinked, and in my mind, I saw us all there 16 years earlier, the hot sun, the blue robes, squinting as we put our arms around each other and posed for instamatic photos. Someone saying, one, two, three. What is it? Maury said, noticing my sudden quiet. What's on your mind? Nothing, I said, changing the subject. The truth is, I do indeed have a brother, a blonde-haired, hazel-eyed, two years younger brother who looks so unlike me or my dark-haired sister that we used to tease him by claiming strangers had left him as a baby on our doorstep. And one day, we'd say, they're coming back to get you. He cried when we said this, but we said it just the same. He grew up the way many youngest children grow up, pampered, adored, and inwardly tortured. He dreamed of being an actor or a singer. He reenacted TV shows at the dinner table, playing every part, his bright smile practically jumping through his lips. I was a good student. He was the bad. I was obedient. He broke the rules. I stayed away from drugs and alcohol, and he tried everything you could ingest. He moved to Europe not long after high school, preferring the more casual lifestyle he found there. Yet he remained the family favorite. 
When he visited home in his wild and funny presence, I often felt stiff and conservative. As different as we were, I reasoned that our fates would shoot in opposite directions once we hit adulthood. I was right in all ways but one. From the day my uncle died, I believed that I would suffer a similar death, an untimely disease that would take me out. So I worked at a feverish pace and I braced myself for cancer. I could feel its breath. I knew it was coming. I waited for it the way a condemned man waits for the executioner. And I was right. It came. But it missed me. It struck my brother. The same type of cancer as my uncle, the pancreas, a rare form. And so the youngest of our family with the blonde hair and hazel eyes had the chemotherapy and the radiation. His hair fell out. His face went gaunt as a skeleton. It's supposed to be me, I thought. But my brother was not me and he was not my uncle. He was a fighter and had been since his youngest days. When we wrestled in the basement, and he actually bit through my shoe until I screamed in pain and let him go. And so he fought back. He battled the disease in Spain where he lived with the aid of an experimental drug that was not and still is not available in the United States. He flew all over Europe for treatments. After five years of treatment, the drug appeared to chase the cancer into remission. That was the good news. The bad news was my brother did not want me around, not me, nor anyone in the family. Much as we tried to call and visit, he held us at bay, insisting this fight was something he needed to do by himself. Months would pass without a word from him. Messages on his answering machine would go without reply. I was ripped with guilt for what I felt I should be doing for him and fueled my anger for his denying us the right to do it. So once again, I dove into work. I worked because I could control it. I worked because work was sensible and responsive. And each time I would call my brother's apartment in Spain and get the answering machine, him speaking in Spanish, just another sign of how far apart we had drifted. I would hang up and I would work some more. Perhaps this was one reason I was drawn to Maury. He let me be where my brother would not. Looking back, perhaps Maury knew this all along. Flashback. It is a winter in my childhood on a snow-packed hill in our suburban neighborhood. My brother and I are on the sled, him on top, me on the bottom. I feel his chin on my shoulder and his feet on the backs of my knees. The sled rumbles on icy patches beneath us. We pick up speed as we descend the hill. Car, someone yells. We see it coming down the street to our left. We scream and try to steer away, but the runners do not move. The driver slams his horn and hits his brakes, and we do what all kids do. We jump off. In our hooded parkas, we roll like logs down the cold, wet snow, thinking the next thing to touch us will be the hard rubber of a car tire. We are yelling, ah, and we are tingling with fear, turning over and over, the world upside down, right side up, upside down, and then nothing. We stop rolling and catch our breath and wipe the dripping snow from our faces. The driver turns down the street, wagging his finger. We are safe. Our sled is thudded quietly into a snowbank and our friends are slapping us now saying, cool, and you could have died. I grin at my brother and we are united by childish pride. That wasn't so hard, we think, and we are ready to take on death again. 
The sixth Tuesday, we talk about emotions. I walked past the mountain laurels and the Japanese maple up the bluestone steps of Maury's house. The white rain gutter hung like a lid over the doorway. I rang the bell and was greeted not by Connie, but by Maury's wife, Charlotte, a beautiful gray-haired woman who spoke in a lilting voice. She was not often at home when I came by. She continued working at MIT, as Maury wished, and I, su I was surprised to see her this morning. Maury's having a bit of a hard time today, she said. She stared over my shoulder for a moment, then moved towards the kitchen. I'm sorry, I said. No, no, he'll be happy to see you, she said quickly. I'm sure... She stopped in the middle of the sentence, turning her head slightly, listening for something. Then she continued, I'm sure he'll feel better when he knows you're here. I lifted up the bags from the market, my normal food supply, I said jokingly, and she seemed to smile and fret at the same time. There's already so much food. He hasn't eaten any from last time. This took me by surprise. He hasn't eaten any, I asked. She opened the refrigerator and I saw familiar containers of chicken salad, vermicelli, vegetables, stuffed squash, all things I had bought for Maury. She opened the freezer and there was even more. Maury can't eat most of this food. It's too hard for him to swallow. He has to eat soft things and liquid drinks now. But he never said anything, I said. Charlotte smiled. He doesn't want to hurt your feelings. It wouldn't have hurt my feelings. I just wanted to help in some way. I mean, I just wanted to bring him something. You are bringing him something. He looks forward to your visits. He talks about having to do this project with you, how he has to concentrate and put the time aside. I think it's giving him a good sense of purpose. Again, she gave that faraway look, the tuning in something from somewhere else. I knew Maury's nights were becoming difficult, that he didn't sleep through them. And that meant Charlotte often did not sleep through them either. Sometimes Maury would lie awake, coughing for hours, it would take that long to get the phlegm from his throat. There were healthcare workers now staying through the night and all those visitors during the day, former students, fellow professors, meditation teachers, tramping in and out of the house. On some days, Maury had half a dozen visitors and they were often there when Charlotte returned from work. She handled it with patience, even though all these outsiders were soaking up her precious minutes with Maury. A sense of purpose, she continued. Yes, that's good, you know? I hope so, I said. I helped put the new food inside the refrigerator. The kitchen counter had all kinds of notes, messages, information, medical instructions. The table held more pill bottles than ever. Celsistone for asthma, Ativan to help him sleep, naproxen for pain, along with a powdered milk mix and laxatives. From down the hall, we heard the sound of a door open. Maybe he's available now. Let me go check. Charlotte glanced again at my food and I suddenly felt ashamed. All these reminders of things Maury would never enjoy. The small horrors of his illness were growing and when I finally sat down with Maury, he was coughing more than usual. A dry, dusty cough that shook his chest and made his head jerk forward. After one violent surge, he stopped, closed his eyes and took a breath. I sat quietly because I thought he was recovering from his exertion. Is the tape on? He asked suddenly, his eyes still closed. 
Yes, yes, I quickly said, pressing down the play and record buttons. What I'm doing now, he continued, his eyes still closed, is detaching myself from the experience. Detaching yourself? Yes, detaching myself. And this is important, not just for someone like me who is dying, but for someone like you who is perfectly healthy. Learn to detach. He opened his eyes. He exhaled. You know what the Buddhists say? Don't cling to things because everything is impermanent. But wait, I said, aren't you always talking about experiencing life? All the good emotions? All the bad ones? Yes. Well, how can you do that if you're detached? Ah, you're thinking, Mitch. But detachment doesn't mean you don't let the experience penetrate you. On the contrary, you let it penetrate you fully. That's how you are able to leave it. I'm lost. Take any emotion, love for a woman or grief for a loved one or what I'm going through, fear and pain from a deadly illness. If you hold back on your emotions, if you don't allow yourself to go all the way through them, you can never get to being detached. You're too busy being afraid. You're afraid of the pain. You're afraid of the grief. You're afraid of the vulnerability that loving entails. But by throwing yourself into these emotions, by allowing yourself to dive in all the way, over your head even, you experience them fully and completely. You know what pain is. You know what love is. You know what grief is. And only then can you say, all right, I have experienced that emotion. I recognize that emotion. Now I need to detach from that emotion for a moment. Maury stopped and looked me over, perhaps to make sure I was getting this right. I know you think this is just about dying, he said. But it's like I keep telling you, when you learn how to die, you learn how to live. Maury talked about his most fearful moments when he felt his chest locked in heaving surges or when he wasn't sure where his next breath would come from. These were horrifying times, he said, and his first emotions were horror, fear, anxiety. But once he recognized the feel of those emotions, their texture, their moisture, the shiver down the back, the quick flash of heat that crosses your brain, then he was able to say, okay, this is fear. Step away from it. Step away. I thought about how often this was needed in everyday life. How we feel lonely, sometimes to the point of tears, but we don't let those tears come because we are not supposed to cry. Or how we feel a surge of love for a partner, but we don't say anything because we're frozen with the fear of what those words might do to the relationship. Maury's approach was exactly the opposite. Turn on the faucet. Wash yourself with the emotion. It won't hurt you. It will only help. If you let the fear inside, if you pull it on like a familiar shirt, then you can say to yourself, all right, it's just fear. I don't have to let it control me. I see for what it is. Same for loneliness. You let go. Let the tears flow. Feel it completely. But eventually be able to say, all right, that was my moment with loneliness. I'm not afraid of feeling lonely. But now I'm going to put that loneliness aside and know that there are other emotions in the world and I am going to experiencing them at well. Detach, Maury said again. He closed his eyes, then coughed. Then he coughed again. Then he coughed again more loudly. Suddenly he was half choking. The congestion in his lungs seemingly teasing him, jumping halfway up, then dropping back down, stealing his breath. He was gagging, then hacking violently. 
and he shook his hands in front of him. With his eyes closed, shaking his hands, he appeared almost possessed, and I felt my forehead break into a sweat. I instinctively pulled him forward and slapped the back of his shoulders, and he pushed a tissue to his mouth and spit out a wad of phlegm. The coughing stopped, and Maury dropped back into the foam pillows and sucked in air. You okay? You all right? I said, trying to hide my fear. I'm okay, Maury whispered, raising his shaky finger. Just wait a minute. We sat there quietly until his breathing returned to normal. I felt the perspiration on my scalp. He asked me to close the window. The breeze was making him cold. I didn't mention that it was 80 degrees outside. Finally, in a whisper, he said, I know how I want to die. I waited in silence. I want to die serenely, peacefully, not like what just happened. And this is where detachment comes in. If I die in the middle of a coughing spell like I just had, I need to be able to detach from the whore. I need to say, this is my moment. I don't want to leave the world in a state of fright. I want to know what's happening, accept it, get to a peaceful place and let go. Do you understand? I nodded. Don't let go yet, I added quickly. Maury forced a smile. No, not yet. We still have work to do. Flashback. Do you believe in reincarnation? I ask. Perhaps. What would you come back as? If I had my choice, a gazelle. A gazelle? Yes, so graceful, so fast. A gazelle? Maury smiles at me. You think that's strange? I study his shrunken frame, the loose clothes, the socks-wrapped feet that rest stiffly on foam rubber cushions, unable to move like a prisoner in leg irons. I picture a gazelle racing across the desert. No, I say. I think, I don't think that's strange at all. The Professor, part two. The Maury I knew, the Maury so many others knew, would not have been the man he was without the years he spent working at a mental hospital just outside Washington, D.C., a place with the decept deceptively peaceful name of Chestnut Lodge. It was one of Maury's first jobs after plowing through a master's degree and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago. Having rejected medicine, law, and business, Maury had decided the research world would be a place where he could contribute without exploiting others. Maury was given a grant to observe mental patients and record their treatments. While the idea seems common today, it was groundbreaking in the early 50s. Maury saw patients who would scream all day, patients who would cry all night, patients soiling their underwear, patients refusing to eat, having to be held down, medicated, fed intravenously. One of the patients, a middle-aged woman, came out of her room every day and lay face down on the tile floor. Stayed there for hours as doctors and nurses stepped around her. Maury watched in horror. He took notes, which is what he was there to do. Every day she did the same thing. Came out in the morning, lay on the floor, stayed there until the evening, talking to no one, ignored by everyone. It saddened Maury. He began to sit on the floor with her, even lay down alongside her, trying to draw her out of her misery. Eventually he got her to sit up and even to return to her room. What she mostly wanted, he learned, was the same thing many people want, someone to notice she was there. Maury worked at Chestnut Lodge for five years. Although it wasn't encouraged, he befriended some of the patients. 
including a woman who joked with him about how lucky she was to be there. Because my husband is rich, so he can afford it. Can you imagine if I had to be in one of those cheap mental hospitals? Another woman who would spit at everyone else took to Maury and called him her friend. They talked each day and the staff was at least encouraged that someone had gotten through to her. But one day she ran away and Maury was asked to help bring her back. They tracked her down in a nearby store, hiding in the back. And when Maury went in, she burned an angry look at him. So you're one of them too, she snarled. One of who? My jailers. Maury observed that most of the patients there had been rejected and ignored in their lives, made to feel that they didn't exist. They also missed compassion, something the staff ran out of quickly. And many of these patients were well off from rich families, so their wealth did not buy them happiness or contentment. It was a lesson he never forgot. I used to tease Maury that he was stuck in the 60s. He would answer that the 60s weren't so bad compared to the times we lived in now. He came to Brandeis after his work in the mental health field just before the 60s began. Within a few years, the campus became a hotbed for cultural revolution. Drugs, sex, race, Vietnam protest. Abby Hoffman attended Brandeis. So did Jerry Rubin and Angela Davis. Nori had many of the radical students in his classes. That was partly because instead of simply teaching, the sociology faculty got involved. It was fiercely anti-war, for example. When the professors learned that students who did not maintain a certain grade point average could lose their deferments and be drafted, they decided not to give any grades. When the administration said, if you don't give these students grades, they will all fail, Maury had a solution. Let's give them all A's. And they did. Just as the 60s opened up on the campus, it also opened up the staff in Maury's department. From the jeans and sandals they now wore when working to their view of the classroom as a living, breathing place. They chose discussions over lectures, experience over theory. They sent students to the Deep South for civil rights projects and to the inner city for fieldwork. They went to Washington for protest marches and Maury often rode the buses with his students. On one trip, he watched with gentle amusement as women in flowing skirts and love beads put flowers in soldiers' guns, then sat on the lawn holding hands trying to levitate the Pentagon. They didn't move it, he later recalled, but it was a nice try. One time, a group of black students took over Ford Hall on Brandeis campus, draping it in a banner that read Malcolm X University. Ford Hall had chemistry labs, and some administration officials worried that these radicals were making bombs in the basement. Maury knew better. He saw right to the core of the problem, which was human beings wanting to feel that they mattered. The standoff lasted for weeks, and it might have gone on even longer if Maury hadn't been walking by the building when one of the protesters recognized him as his favorite teacher and yelled for him to come in through the window. An hour later, Maury crawled through the window with a list of what the protesters wanted. He took the list to the university president and the situation was diffused. Maury always made good peace. At Brandeis, he taught classes about social psychology, mental illness and health, group process. They were light on what you call now career skills and heavy on personal development. And because of this, business and law students today might look at Maury as foolishly naive about his contributions. How much money did his students go on to make? How many big time cases did they win? Then again, how many business or law students ever visit their old professors once they leave? Maury's students did that all the time. And in his final months, they came back to him, hundreds of them, 
from Boston, New York, California, London, and Switzerland, from corporate offices and inner city school programs. They called, they wrote, they drove hundreds of miles for a visit, a word, a smile. I've never had another teacher like you, they all said. As my visits with Maury go on, I began to read about death, how different cultures view the final passage. There's a tribe in the North American Arctic, for example, who believe that all things on earth have a soul that exists in a miniature form of the body that holds it. So that a deer has a tiny deer inside it and a man has a tiny man inside him. When the large being dies, that tiny form lives on. It can slide into someone being born nearby or it can go to a temporary resting place in the sky in the belly of a great feminine spirit where it waits until the moon can send it back to earth. Sometimes they say, the moon is so busy with the new souls of the world that it disappears from the sky. That is why we have moonless nights. But in the end, the moon always returns, as do we all. That is what they believe. The seventh Tuesday, we talk about the fear of aging. Maury lost his battle. Someone was now wiping his behind. He faces with typically brave acceptance, no longer able to reach behind him when he used the commode, he informed Connie of his latest limitation. Would you be embarrassed to do it for me? She said no. I found it typical that he asked her first. It took some getting used to, Maury admitted, because it was, in a way, complete surrender to the disease. The most personal and basic things had now been taken from him, going to the bathroom, wiping his nose, washing his private parts. With the exception of breathing and swallowing his food, he was dependent on others for nearly everything. I asked Maury how he managed to stay positive through that. Mitch, it's funny, he said. I'm an independent person, so my inclination was to fight all of this, being helped from a car, having someone else dress me. I felt a little ashamed because our culture tells us we should be ashamed if we can't wipe our own behind. But then I figured, forget what culture says. I ignored the culture most of my life. I am not going to be ashamed. What's the big deal? And you know what? The strangest thing. What's that? I began to enjoy my dependency. Now I enjoy when they turn me over on my side and wear cream on my behind so I don't get sores. And when they wipe my brow or they massage my legs, I revel in it. I close my eyes and soak it up. And it seems very familiar to me. It's like going back to being a child again. Someone to bathe you, someone to lift you, someone to wipe you. We all know how to be a child. It's inside all of us. For me, it's just remembering how to enjoy it. The truth is, when our mothers held us, rocked us, stroked our heads, none of us ever got enough of that. We all yearn in some way to return to those days when we were completely taken care of. Unconditional love, unconditional attention. Most of us didn't get it enough. I know I didn't. I looked at Maury and I suddenly knew why he so enjoyed my leaning over and adjusting his microphone or fussing with his pillows or wiping his eyes. Human touch. At 78, he was giving as an adult and taking as a child. Later that day, we talked about aging, or maybe I should say the fear of aging. Another of the issues on my what's bugging my generation list. 
On my ride from the Boston airport, I had counted the billboards that featured young and beautiful people. There was a handsome young man in a cowboy hat smoking a cigarette, two beautiful young women smiling over a shampoo bottle, a sultry-looking teenager with her jeans unsnapped, and a sexy woman in a black velvet dress next to a man in a tuxedo, the two of them snuggling a glass of scotch. Not once did I see anyone who had passed for over 35. I told Maury I was already feeling over the hill, much as I tried desperately to stay on top of it. I worked out constantly, watched what I ate, checked my hairline in the mirror. I had gone from being proud to say my age because of all I had done so young to not bringing it up for fear I was getting too close to 40 and therefore professional oblivion. Maury had aging in better perspective. All this emphasis of youth, I don't buy it, he said. Listen, I know what a misery being young can be, so don't tell me it's so great. All these kids who came to me with their struggles, their strife, their feelings of inadequacy, their sense that life was miserable, so bad they wanted to kill themselves. In addition to all these miseries, the young are not wise. They have very little understanding about life. Who wants to live every day when you don't know what's going on? When people are manipulating you, telling you to buy this perfume and you'll be beautiful, or this pair of jeans and you'll be sexy, and you believe them, it's such nonsense. Weren't you ever afraid to grow old? I asked. Mitch, I embrace aging. Embrace it? It's very simple. As you grow, you learn more. If you stayed at 72 or 22, you'd always be as ignorant as you were at 22. Aging is not just decay, you know, it's growth. It's more than the negative that you're going to die. It's also the positive that you understand you're going to die and that you live a better life because of it. Yes, I said, but if aging were so valuable, why do people always say, oh, if I were young again? You never hear people say, I wish I were 65. He smiled. You know what that reflects? Unsatisfied lives, unfulfilled lives, lives that haven't found meaning. Because if you found meaning in your life, you don't want to go back. You want to go forward. You want to see more, do more. You can't wait until 65. Listen, you should all know something. All younger people should know something. If you're always battling against getting older, you're always going to be unhappy because it will happen anyhow. And Mitch, he lowered his voice. The fact is, you are going to die eventually. I nodded. It won't matter what you tell yourself. I know. But hopefully, he said, not for a long, long time. He closed his eyes with a peaceful look, then asked me to adjust the pillows behind his head. His body needed constant adjustment to stay comfortable. It was propped in the chair with white pillows, yellow foam, and blue towels. At a quick glance, it seemed as if Maury were being packed for shipping. Thank you, he whispered as I moved the pillows. No problem, I said. Mitch, what are you thinking? I paused before answering. Okay, I said. I'm wondering how you don't envy younger, healthy people. Oh, I guess I do. He closed his eyes. I envy them being able to go to health clubs or go for a swim or dance, mostly for dancing. But envy comes to me. I feel it and then I let it go. Remember what I said about detachment? Let it go. Tell yourself, that's envy. I'm going to separate from it now and walk away. He coughed. 
a long, scratchy cough, and he pushed a tissue to his mouth and spit weakly into it. Sitting there, I felt so much stronger than he, ridiculously so, as if I could lift him and toss him over my shoulder like a sack of flour. I was embarrassed by the superiority because I did not feel superior to him in any other way. How do you keep from envying what? Me, he smiled. Mitch, it is impossible for the old not to envy the young, but the issue is to accept who you are and revel in that. This is your time to be in your 30s. I had my time to be in my 30s, and now is my time to be 78. You have to find what's good and true and beautiful in your life as it is now. Looking back makes you comparative and competitive, and age is not a competitive issue. He exhaled and lowered his eyes, as if to watch his breath scatter into the air. The truth is, part of me is every age. I'm a three-year-old. I'm a five-year-old. I'm a 37-year-old. I'm a 50-year-old. I've been through them all, and I know what it's like. I delight in being a child when it's appropriate to be a child. I delight in being a wise old man when it's appropriate to be a wise old man. Think of all I can be. I'm every age up to my own. Do you understand? I nodded. How can I be envious of where you are when I've been there myself? <laughs>